In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of 1 Kings. Um, last time we started the book um, with the first two chapters, 1 and 2, um, and today we're going to continue. Um, just a, a brief summary of last time. Does anyone want to summarize what it is that we covered last last week? What happened last week? The death of David. Good. That was the very first thing that was mentioned. Okay. And then what happened? Is Solomon um, assuming the throne instead of uh, his half brother? Uh, Adonijah assuming the throne. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Adonijah assuming the throne. Instead. To assume the throne. Yes. Instead of Solomon. Yes. Okay. And then what happens? Then Nathan, uh, and uh, uh, Bathsheba uh, intervene. Okay. And, and then um, Solomon ends up being declared king by King David. And then what happens with Adonijah? Uh, he eventually he try he tries again, and then uh, and then Solomon the second time doesn't let let that pass, and he like R right. So the first time Adonijah asked for mercy, Solomon granted him mercy, but then Adonijah also tried to manipulate again and to um, take the throne a different way, um, and this time Solomon was not merciful to him. And then the last thing that happened with another character that we had read about previously in Second Samuel. Shimmy. Shimmy, Shimmy, right? So Shimmy was a person who had cursed King David in 2 Samuel, and so Solomon had initially granted him, um, he was kind of like on probation, he was allowed to stay, um, but he had to stay within the confines of his region, but then one day he ended up leaving, and so when he violated that agreement, um, he was killed. So that was kind of wrapping up all of the loose ends um, from the reign of King David that Solomon did when he became king. Um, and so now we're going to speak about kind of the next phase, and as Solomon now begins to govern as a king, um, what, what happens, okay? So it says, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Okay, so, so what is significant here that we read right off the bat in the very beginning of the reign of King Solomon? So he's not marrying an Israelite woman, okay? So he is immediately, right off the bat, he's beginning to make some mistakes. Now you see the reasoning behind why he did it. Why is it that he would marry the daughter of Pharaoh of Egypt? For what reason? He doesn't need to use the microphone. Protection, okay? Protection, like military protection. Okay, good. So like for political reasons, right? that King Solomon believed that if he allied himself with Egypt, who was known to be like a powerful nation at the time, uh, then this would be good for Israel, right? So he was smart in the sense that he's making good decisions that, that from, a, from a political standpoint would benefit Israel, okay? But the problem was is that by doing so, he is, number one, he is um, introducing uh, like pagan worship not only for himself, but for all of Israel, because he's aligning himself with a pagan nation. 
um, but also specifically disobeying the commandments of God, because God specifically had said not to take, like not not to um, to take uh, women uh, who were of the Gentiles to himself uh, to themselves as Israelites, because they would cause them to fall. So it says, "Nor shall you make marriages of them." This is in Deuteronomy chapter seven. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Okay. So, so even from back before the Israelites entered into the promised land, as Moses is giving a warning, of course, based on God's warning, um, that when you enter the land, you should separate yourself from the people who are of the land. So this command was given specifically to um, warn against marrying the Canaanite women. So the Canaanite w women were the women who were uh, living in the land of Canaan um, at the time when the Israelites were coming to conquer the land. But it still applies in this case because here we see that, um, that, that, that what's going to happen to Solomon is that he is going to go astray and turn um, away from God. Actually, Nehemiah himself, okay, Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13, he references this, okay, and he says what, um, when, when Nehemiah is also giving instructions to the people after he returned from the exile from Assyria uh, and back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he tells the people, he says, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God. So, so, so he even considered that what Solomon is doing is sin. Okay, This is the beginning of, of, of this fall from the very first step. Now, maybe King Solomon, clearly, at this point, it's not that he has become a pagan. He's still a worshiper of God. He still believes in God. But he's starting to make compromises, like these small compromises that he thinks in himself he is able to make, and the benefit of which is very, very uh, high. There's a high, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a good reason why he's doing it. You know, he is justifying it to himself by saying, yes, I will go against what is it that God has said, but number one, I can handle it, and number two, there's a very good reason for the good of the nation, right? Not, not necessarily for himself, but for the good of the nation. And so he began to compromise this principle um, from the very beginning. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Okay, so what, what are the high places? Leftover temples from the time of when the Canaanites and the other people ruled the land. Okay, so the high places were the places of worship of, like, all of the pagan people. Okay? Where is it that the Israelites were supposed to worship? In the tabernacle. So at this point, the temple hasn't been built yet, but they should be worshiping at the tabernacle. Why is it that the Israelites would go to these high places and worship there, even though the tabernacle was there? Because it's fancier, like uh, it's a pretty stupid answer, but like some people would like to go, like today, like just pray in a Catholic church because it's a nicer building. Mm. Would that? Yeah. So, so I mean, they definitely saw what the other people were doing, right? Like they were very influenced by what they saw of the Canaanites. So, b when they when they saw the Canaanites were worshiping these gods, 
and having idols, for instance, like we talked about this um, uh, before, like when when the Israelites saw that, let's see, Dagon, which is the, the god of, of, the, of war, of the Philistines, would uh, they would have an idol of, of Dagon and bring him with them to the battle. So the Israelites, they would get nervous and they were like, well, look, they have like this visible god idol with them. And so they also wanted to have something. So like what did they bring? They would bring the Ark of the Covenant, right? Even though the Ark of the Covenant was never made to be like brought around to battles and things, it was meant to stay in the tabernacle. So so the they would see what the other nations would do and they would want the same. Say, for instance, why is it even that there is a king at all? Behold, because they said, what? We want to be like the other nations. They told God, we want, like they told Samuel the prophet, we want to be like the other nations. The other nations have kings. Why is it that we don't have kings? Right? So they would always just look at themselves as being kind of less than the rest. Less than the rest. Even though they were greater than the rest. Like the reason that they were different was not because the others had something that they didn't have right they were different because they have something that the others didn't have which is god himself right like maybe sometimes we uh compare ourselves to the people who are living around us in our society and we say oh well look those people are able to do this and this and this and we can't do it and we don't do it and we feel like somehow we're like deprived um, of something instead of looking at it as like no we are not deprived actually they are deprived they are deprived of the, the grace that we have received. They are deprived of the salvation that we enjoy, right? So the Israelites, they always felt like when they compared themselves to the people around, they were not satisfied, right? Even when, again, back to when they were asking for a king, God said, I am your king. Are you unsatisfied, dissatisfied with me being your king that you want a human being to be the king instead? And he gave them all these warnings. He said, if you uh, get a, a, a human king, to be your king, all of these things are going to happen. And he's going to ask you to join the army. And he's going to tax you. And he's going to uh, call you to be his servants. And he's going to do all these things. Do you still want a king? And they're like, yes, we want a king, right? Instead of saying, no, we are satisfied that God, God is the king, okay? So here also, when it came to the form of worship, they wanted to emulate and imitate the other people. And so, yes, there were these high places that had been set up for pagan worship. And they said, you know what? We're going to appropriate it. It's not that we're going to go worship the pagan gods, but what we're going to do is we're going to take the means of worship that they did, and we are going to appropriate it to ourselves, and we're going to worship God using these means. Okay? And maybe in their minds this was appropriate. But God had not asked for this. He did not want this. right? Um, and actually, in the eyes of God, this is an abomination. He had actually specifically commanded them regarding these high places. Again, in Deuteronomy 12, when they were getting ready to enter the promised land, he said, what? You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the graved image, carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. Right? And then he talks to them about making offerings and so on. So, so he, he, he made it very explicit and clear in case there was any confusion. Should we go and use these places for worshiping God? God said very clearly, no, you should go destroy these places. Yeah. Question. Um, when it says the people sacrificed, um, 
the sacrifice has to be done by the priests, right? Like yes. So that means that the priests were also offering the sacrifice. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there there were a lot of priests that were not doing the right thing. Yeah. But I mean, they could have been doing other things as well. Like they could have been doing. Some people could be doing it themselves. Some of the priests might be doing it. Um, but in general, they they were going to worship in in ways that you know God had not um, sanctioned. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Okay, so we see um, a little bit more compromise. Right, so the first compromise was marrying the f daughter of Pharaoh. Here we have another compromise, which is he's doing everything that David did, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now, David did not do this. Like it, this was a, this was a known thing. Like this was a thing that people knew that this is God did not want this king. David did not do this, and yet Solomon felt that it was okay. Right, so he he began to um, he began to do it. Now, this does not mean. You know, sometimes we look at different characters of the Bible and we try to look that look at them in a very black and white way. Like, is this a good guy or a bad guy? Right. It's not like that. Obviously, King Solomon was uh, a good person, a follower of God, like someone who, who 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 cared about God's will. But he had weaknesses and he had failures and he had mistakes. And here are some of them. Right. That he is um, offering this at uh, these high places. Now, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. Okay. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? Now notice that Solomon went to Gibeon where there is a high place in order to offer sacrifice at the high place, which is exactly contradicting God. Okay. But after he went there, still, God appeared to him in a dream, and he wants to bless Solomon. Like, what do you, why? Wouldn't we think that maybe God would be angry with Solomon, and he would, like, not want to bless Solomon, not want to ask him, what shall I give you? think like God is trying to make him taste the real you know uh, the real one God uh, you mm. know that m this might turn uh, turn him away from doing these transgressions good God is not reactionary like that is it true that there are times where yeah, people sin and God punishes of course there is we see many examples of that but then it doesn't mean that everything God does is just like Oh, you did something good, so something good is going to happen. Oh, you did something bad, so something bad is going to happen. And sometimes people think that that's the way it goes. Like, you know what, I, I committed a sin this morning and I got into a car accident in the evening. And they correlate the two. Like, the, that's the reason I got into the car accident, because I did something wrong earlier in the day. No, but that's not, God is not like vindictive like that. God is not like ready to pounce in punishment like that, right? Even when we do wrong, God blesses. Imagine if God would withhold his blessing any time that we would sin, we would never receive any blessing. Like salvation itself was offered to humanity in the midst of our sin, not because of our righteousness. That's actually the whole concept of salvation is that it is undeserved. 
right? And that's what m the word mercy means. Mercy means it's undeserved. It's unearned, right? So God is merciful. He does not give us according to our deeds. Yes, of course, there are times where God wants us to learn through consequence. But there are other times that God wants us to learn through grace and through mercy, right? There are times where God uses justice, and there's times where God withholds, like, swift justice to have patience with us so that we would come to repentance, okay? So here God wants to bless Solomon. Also, Solomon is not just a man. He is a representation of all of Israel. So he is a representation of all the people. When Solomon is blessed, all of Israel is blessed. All the children of God are blessed, and he wants to bless them. So he's coming to this man, and he's saying, ask of me whatever you want. And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. So his, his first response to God in this dream, when God is saying, ask whatever it is you want, the first thing he does is he begins to acknowledge the character of God. He begins to acknowledge the works of God that he has done to his father and indirectly to him, okay? And, and like his goodness. He's not swift to answer the question. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. One of the characteristics of Solomon is his great humility. And we will contrast this later on with Solomon's son, whose name is Rehoboam, through which the kingdom was divided because of his pride, because of his stubbornness, right? Whereas here, Solomon is showing this great humility. You know, Rehoboam, fast forward, after Solomon died, Rehoboam felt like, I have these big shoes to fill, and I, and I, and I need the people to respect me, so I have to be tough. I have to be tough with them so the people will respect me, okay? Whereas here, like King, King Solomon, he is not trying to like, he's not trying to fill the shoes of David, but he is saying David was a great king and a great servant of God. Who am I compared to him, right? Like you have made me to be the king, which is to, to replace my father who was the king, but I am not mature. I am like a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. Like go out and come in is a phrase that's used often in the Old Testament, which is kind of means like to go about my activities, to fulfill my responsibilities, to go to war and to return from war, to go out and come in, like to be active, to do everything that I'm supposed to do. Just kind of like in our, in our homes, like we, we, are, we sleep in our homes and we go out, we do whatever it is we're gonna do in the day, we go to work, we do everything, and then we come back in, right? So he's saying, I don't know how to go out and come in well, right? Not like my father. I don't know how to manage a kingdom. I don't know how to be a leader. I don't know how to do all of these things. And he admitted these things humbly. Maybe uh, people in a position like this, even like let's say in a company. Let's say you had a company which had like a very, very good and successful CEO. Um, and then that CEO leaves for whatever reason. And now there's a new CEO that is being appointed in his place. The first thing that that CEO wants to do is show that he's competent, you know, show that he knows what's going on, shows that no one is going to uh, trick him, shows that he knows how to run the business effectively. Like, like he, he wants to show this kind of air of, of, of strength and, and glory and, you know, competence, right? He would never go and have like a meeting 
and say to the people, it's like, I'm a little child. You know, the previous CEO, he was so great, but I don't know what to do. Like, you would, no, no one would think that, no one would say that. You know, maybe people feel that way, but they don't want to ever admit that that's the way that they feel, right? Because they want everyone to see them as being kind of this, this leadership figure. Whereas King Solomon, he was very open with God and he said, I don't know. Show me. Show me what you want me to do. <coughs> and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. So he also understood the magnitude of his responsibility. He didn't take it lightly, nor did he use his, res his, his position as a way of self-enrichment. Like this wasn't just, hey, I want to be king because I get to live in the palace and I get to have fancy things and people serve me. No, he's saying, you, uh, my job is to serve the people, and those people are many, with many needs. How is it that I can serve them? So again, he feels like this is beyond his ability. They say actually that the best leaders are those who do not seek to be leaders, right? The best leaders are the ones who leadership is imposed on them, right? Because those who maybe seek to be leaders are the ones who want the perks of leadership. You know, maybe also why, like the church, like in, in, the, in the wisdom of the church, that like we choose the bishops from among the monks. Like the people who wanted to leave the world completely, not have any authority at all, not serve anyone, just be completely like hidden, not receive any glory, not, not seek any kind of benefit for themselves. We go to those people and we say, sorry, you have, we're calling you to a life that's the exact opposite of the one that you chose for yourself because you are the most worthy to receive it, you know, because, because you did not seek it out right therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that i may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours so king solomon's request was very selfless right he didn't ask for anything for himself he didn't ask for god to do anything personally for him his request was, God, help me to govern the people. Help me to have wisdom. And not just help me to have wisdom, but help me to discern good and evil. Meaning, I want to govern according to God's moral commands. Like, I want to govern according to God's standard. I don't want to just govern according to the standard of the world. I don't want to just do what makes sense to me or what's going to get our country kind of the, the most enriched. No, I want to do what is right, right? I want to do the right thing. Um, and so God is, so here King Solomon is asking for God's wisdom. And one thing I want to emphasize is God grants wisdom to anyone who asks him. This is not unique to King Solomon, right? Anyone who asks, asks God for wisdom will receive. In James 1, 1 chapter 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You know, there are some things that when we ask God, he might answer and he might not. You know, we ask God for things that are unanswered because God knows that those things are not good for us. But there are some things that the Bible says that if we ask him, we will definitely receive. Like without a question. Because those things are good. And asking for wisdom is good. And, and so when, when St. James is writing this, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, which is like everyone, okay, all of us need more wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives all to liberal, gives to all liberally. Liberally, like he's giving in abundance. Like he's not stingy with giving 
of wisdom, and without reproach, it will be given to him. So God wants us to have wisdom because God asks us to do his will. And how is it that we are going to do his will without his wisdom? It is impossible. How is it that I am going to discern how to live my life in the right way without the wisdom of God? So he's saying, ask of God. He will give you the wisdom that you need in order to live your life. In whatever responsibility, whatever sphere of influence that we have, God will grant us wisdom to be wise in it and to make good decisions in it and to be successful and prosperous in it. So, of course, in the case of a king of a kingdom, that is a huge sphere of responsibility, right? Sphere of influence. And so he is very much in need of the wisdom of God. So, again, King Solomon did not come thinking that he had all the answers already. Very different than his son will be. Okay, But he did not come thinking he had the answers, and he's asking God, give me the wisdom to rule. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. So God is saying, this, the, the, like he's giving him a special kind of wisdom. A wisdom that goes beyond the normal wisdom that we think about. And this is related to um, the, like the, the gifts of the Spirit, right? You know, like one of the gifts of the Spirit, for instance, is faith. But aren't we all supposed to have faith? Right? Everyone's supposed to have faith. Why is this one of the specific gifts of the Spirit that God is giving to some people? Right? Or patience or kindness. Sorry, those are fruits. Uh, um, the, the, the idea that God is granting certain people an ex excess of that gift, an excess of that fruit. Something beyond the normal. Meaning, yes, God is granting to all wisdom, but here he's granting to Solomon a special kind of wisdom. Like a wisdom that is going beyond the normal wisdom. We see in the lives of certain people, like in the lives of the saints, God grants to certain people an excess amount of patience. Like patience beyond comprehension. Or knowledge beyond comprehension. Or mercy beyond comprehension. Yes, we are all called to have mercy. We're all called to have patience. We're all called to have faith. But, but God like shows like himself and his grace manifested in individuals by granting an excess of something, right? Of So here he's granting King Solomon a special measure of wisdom, and we will begin to see how this wisdom um, is, is played out in his life. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all all your days. He's saying, not only am I going to give you the spiritual wisdom, but I'm also giving you all the worldly stuff. Okay, all of the worldly things I'm granting to you, and no one else, no other king will be like you in, in your glory, right? In your worldly um, glory. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Okay, so what is it that he's saying here at the end? Um, this is the condition, okay? This is the condition. If you want to keep these things, right? If you want to keep these gifts that I have given you, okay? Then what is your role? 
Okay, walk in my ways, keep my statutes, my commandments, as your father David, then I will lengthen your days. So every gift that God gives, it's possible for us to forsake it if we react wrongly to it, if I respond in the wrong way to it. For instance, the greatest gift, which is the gift of salvation itself, right? I can either receive it or I can reject it, right? All of these gifts that God wants to give here, he wants to give wisdom. I can choose to work with the wisdom that God gave me, or I can choose to reject it. That's what it means to quench the Holy Spirit. Quenching the Holy Spirit means the Holy Spirit is like trying to give me something, and I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to receive that, right? I want to go a different direction, okay? Which is why even King Solomon, who was the greatest, uh, like had the greatest wisdom, was still able to go astray from God, right? because that was not a wise thing. Right? You, you would imagine that the person who had more wisdom than, than anyone ever before would never turn away from God because that is like the ultimate foolish thing to be done. Right? But again, God granting wisdom to Solomon did not overwrite the free will of Solomon. It's like giving him a tool in his tool belt. Right? He's saying, if you want to use this tool, it's off. It's available to you. It's a very, very strong tool. This tool is stronger than, than, than anyone else's. Right? So if you use it right, you will be able to achieve what no one else can achieve. Or you can throw it away. Or you can just not use it. Right? It is up to you to decide what you will do with it. Okay? Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. It reminds us also of that verse... Um, in the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all the rest of these will be added to you. This is exactly what God is doing. He's saying, you sought first the kingdom of God. You sought first the wisdom and so I will add everything else to you, right? Now this doesn't mean obviously that if we all ask God for wisdom, then he's going to say, I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to make you a billionaire, right? Uh, clearly, that is not what happens. Um, God saw that this was good for King Solomon to have this glory. And if you think about it, um, God knew what would happen. Like, like God, God knew that King Solomon was going to go through this period of life where he kind of goes astray and all of this glory kind of goes to his head and he lives this vain life. But he also knew that at the end of that period he would return and having experienced the fullness of what everything, like everything that can be experienced in life, he would, he would have this kind of sober realization about what is important and what is not. And even when he would write for us the book of Ecclesiastes, the only way that he was able to write that book that we then benefit from today is because he went through that whole journey. He went through that process and he experienced it like, like, like ultimate indulgence. And then he realized that ultimate indulgence is empty and vanity and grasping for the wind, right? So even in granting here, of course, Solomon doesn't know this, what is going to happen at this point. But we can see even the wisdom of God in granting him all this glory ultimately is going to be for his benefit and for our benefit. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean that King Solomon didn't sin because he did. Um, but, um, but there was some purpose even behind that. Yes. Yeah. But usually in a dream, like when God appeared to Peter, or like in a vision and things like that, God is speaking. But here, 
as you mentioned a few verses ago, based on Solomon's response and what he asked for and his humility, God did this and that. But this is all in a dream. So I'm not understanding. Is this like actually Solomon talking or because it's all a dream? Yeah. So this is Solomon responding in this dream to God. And based on that, God is doing something. So is his response like actually Solomon talking to God? I know it's a silly question, but I'm just confused because it's in the middle of a dream. And based on his response in the dream, God does so and so. Yes. So, I mean, the idea of it being a dream means that obviously he's, n- he's not, it's not happening in, in the real world, like in the normal world, right? But it doesn't mean that it's like a dream the way that we have dreams that are just images that you see, right? So it's, it's real. It's like a vision, right? So he's standing before God. He is communicating with God. He realizes that this is not just a dream; that there is some that it, that it, that it's real. And so, this conversation he's happening is like a binding conversation. Like it's, it's not it's not just like you have a dream where you're kind of just observing what's happening. Yeah. Okay. So now we're going to get to see immediately what the wisdom of Solomon looks like. Okay, what is this wisdom that he has received? Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O my lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were there uh, and, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And the woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke to the king. So we understand what's happening, right? You have these two women that are each have infants and one of the infants dies and the other is alive, and both of them are claiming that the one who is alive is actually their own. Now, if you were in a position like this, how would you determine? Like, you don't have DNA testing, right? So how would you determine the truth? It's very hard, right? Like, I can tell you, like, as a priest, like, priests get put into situations where two people come to them, and one person's like, such and such happened, and this person did this, and the other person says, no, this and this happened, and that person did that. And you're just kind of like, okay, and you don't know. <laughs> like, you, you don't know, like, you can ask questions, right? Um, but in the end, if, if people are, you know, like in this case, one of the people is lying, you know, a lot of times the discrepancy happens because people just see things in a different way, from a different perspective. But here, clearly, one of the women is lying. And how is it that King Solomon is going to know? 
And he could have very, very justifiably said, I don't know. You guys figure it out. I have no way to judge. I have no way to know the truth. You know, like he could have just dismissed it as being something beyond his ability to to judge and beyond maybe his scope, right? And like, is he going to be listening to every single person who has a problem with every single other person that's going to come to him and be like, hey, you need to bring me justice? Like he could have responded in many, many different ways. But this is how he responds. And the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So Solomon said, we're going to cut the baby in two, give each person half. That's fair, right? And But the real mother, of course, having compassion on her son, not wanting him to die, wanted to spare him, whereas the other one, not really caring because it wasn't her son, said, fine, let's divide him up. So the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is the mother. So the principle is the, the woman who is the true mother has to demonstrate that motherly nature somehow. And so he found a way for her to demonstrate that motherly nature, right? And through this, he knew who the mother was. So he was very wise in the way that he dealt with the situation um, and was able to come to the right conclusion. And so we see like the wisdom of God working in him. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So it was very evident in the way that this whole situation played out that the wisdom of God was with him. And God always has this way of um, showing his grace in those who are his servants so that the others would follow. You know, when Joshua became the leader of the Israelites after Moses, we're back in that same scenario where he has very big shoes to fill. I mean, Moses was one of the greatest prophets, and he had the greatest accomplishments out of any prophet. He led the people out of Egypt from slavery. He parted the Red Sea. He made them drink from the water from the rock. He, he, you know, he was the prophet who said the, the manna was going to come from heaven. He received the Ten Commandments. He, he led them through the wilderness. Like all these things that Moses did, imagine, and then like after he dies, they come to you and be like, okay, you're the next one. Like, you come after that. Like, that's very hard. And yet, when jo Joshua became the leader, God made it very clear to Joshua. He said, what? As the people followed Moses, so they will follow you. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. Like, don't be afraid, because I will be, be with you the same. Because the greatness of Moses was not because of Moses the man. It was because of the greatness of God in Moses, right? And so the greatness of God in Moses is now going to be the greatness of God in Joshua. And we very quickly see all the things that began to happen now with Joshua. You know, where, where God says, now walk around Jericho and then the walls fall down, right? Happening with Joshua. He says, tell the priests to go stand into the Jordan River. And now the, the Jordan River is starting to like pile up like, like a heap of water so that the people can cross. The people now realize because Joshua is leading them and God is doing all these things that God is with Joshua just like he was with Moses. 
So here we see God is, is declaring, Solomon is my chosen servant because I am showing, I'm, I'm working in him. This is one of the ways actually that we discover the calling of God. Okay, like when we say, for instance, that a person is called for something, a person is called for priesthood, a call person is called to serve in a certain way, a person is called to do whatever it is. What is it that we mean? Because what we don't mean is that there is some, you know, like physical manifestation or miracle or vision or something that tells us what is it that God is calling us for. No, it is the circumstance. When people see the way that Solomon responded, they see this is the wisdom of God in him. Like he is the true king. He is the true king, the, tr the one who was truly chosen by God. He was really called by God for this and it is manifested in him. When you Sometimes you see certain people and you feel that they have certain qualities, certain uh, abilities, something about them fits very well with a certain calling, right? This is the call that God is making. That's chapter 3, okay? So then we move on to Solomon's administration of his kingdom. So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest, Elihoreph, and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army, Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. So if you were paying attention last week, there's some one of these names that might get your attention and be a little, like, confusing. Huh? Amazing. Very good. Why? He was, he, he, he was one of the ones who supported Adonijah, right, to be king. And so uh, in chapter 3, Solomon, what? It says he removed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord. So how is it if in the, the chapter 3, or sorry, chapter, uh, chapter 2, chapter 2, sorry. How is it that he could be removed from being the priest to the Lord, whereas here he's mentioned as being priest? Well, what this means is that he was technically still a priest, like he has the rank of priest, but he does not hold the position of priest. He does not, he's not actively working in that role in the government. But he is still a priest, like he wasn't like defrocked of being priest, right? But he is not having his responsibility, okay? Whereas Zadok the priest, he was the one who was um, serving and acting as priest. Azariah, the son of Nathan, over the officers. Zebud, the son of Nathan, a priest and the king's friend. Ahishar over the household, and Adoniram, uh, the son of Abda, over the labor force. And Solomon had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. These are their names. So, so what, what are these 12 governors doing? What is their role? Or one of their roles? To do what? Providing food for the king's household. This is like their job. We're going to have 12 governors of different regions, and every region is going to be responsible for serving the king his food and his household the food, providing for him one month of the year. Okay? So he says what? Ben-Hur and the mountains of Ephraim, Ben-Decker and Mechaz, Shelabim, Beth-Shemesh and Elon Beth-Hanan, Ben Hesed and Araboth, to him belong Sokoh and all the land of Hefer, 
ben uh, Abinadab and all the regions of Dor. He had Tephath, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. Bana, the son of Ahilud, the in Tanakh, Megiddo, and all Bashin, which is beside Zeratan, below Jezreel, from Bethshin to Abel Mahola, as far as the other side of Jokanim. Ben Geber and Ramoth Gilead, to him belonged the towns of Jer, the son of Manasseh, and Gilead to him who belonged in the region of Argob and Bashan, six large cities with walls and bronze gate bars, Ahinadab, uh, the son of Edo, and Mahanaim, Ahimaz, and Naphtali. He also took Basimath, the daughter of Solomon, as wife. Bena, the son of Hushai, and Asher, and Oloth, Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua, and Issachar, Shimei, the son of Elah, and Benjamin, Geber, the son of Uri, in the land of Gilead, in the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. He was the only governor who was in the land. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea and multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines. As far as the border of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Okay, if we go back to 1 Samuel, when um, God is warning, <coughs> God and Samuel are warning the people, that he's saying, if you uh, want a king, okay, this is what you should expect. He said many, many things. This is one of the things. This is in First Samuel chapter 8. He says, he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. Here we see this is exactly, right? This is not wrong, what Solomon is doing. I mean, the government and him and his kingdom, they need taxes, they need support and whatnot. But this is exactly what Samuel had warned the people. He says, if you want a king for yourself, be prepared to pay. Be prepared to serve. Be prepared to sacrifice. Because you must give of your things in order to support this government that you are seeking. And that is what Solomon is doing. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. This is for one day. This is the amount that Solomon's palace, his servants needed for one day. Okay? 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides the other animals. So this is gives you some scale of like the grandeur of Solomon and, and his palace and his, 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 his servants. Like he was, he was a big deal. He had a lot, a whole lot. And you see how much, not just the resources that he had, but how much he needed to use on a daily basis. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. And he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Right. So as we mentioned before, um, Solomon 
uh, his reign is categorized by a time of peace. Very different than David. David was at war his entire life. And actually, one of the reasons, you remember, David wanted to build the temple. Why is it that God told him no? Yes, because he has always been at war, right? And that he was not the right one to build the, the temple. The temple, of course, is a symbol of reconciliation with God. Because in the temple, the sacrifices that are offered are to reconcile the people with God for the forgiveness of their sins, right? And so God wanted King Solomon to be the one to build the temple and... Um, his reign was characterized by peace. There, were, there was no wars during his time. And this is one of the things when we mentioned that he is a type of Christ, a type of the Messiah, um, also because he is the Prince of Peace, just as we call Christ, he is the Prince of Peace. Yes. What does it mean by he was the only governor who was in the land? Nineteen. Is it oh. talking about Og, king of Bashan? He's saying... Um, Geber is the only uh, governor in that region. I think that's what it's saying. Yeah. Which is originally from the book of Exodus. So this is mentioning the same king that was mentioned before or in the book of uh yeah Exodus yeah Okay He's he's saying he's saying this is the region not not that that king was alive at that time he had already died long ago He's saying his 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 region this region which was the region of the Amorites uh, uh and Og king of Bashan right this region has this governor whose name is Geber so he's like, even though these people have been long dead, but they are still identifying that region according to like the history of Israel, like what happened in the past. Okay. Okay. So he tells you more about the kinds of things that Solomon had. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. So again, this is a, a, a manifestation of the blessing that God gave to Solomon, just as he said, that not only am I going to give you wisdom like you asked for to know good and evil, but I'm going to give you what you have not asked for, which is riches and glory and honor, right? And this is, this is what, what he's been given. All of these resources, God has blessed his kingdom and made it very prosperous. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the, land, like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all the men, than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was, all, was in all the surrounding nations. So these were like well-known wise men. He says he is wiser than all of these people. 
He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Also he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations and all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So he was very knowledgeable. He was like had he had great understanding, not just uh, like wisdom to like discern, but God gave him also like knowledge of all things, like knowledge of creatures and knowledge of plants and animals and you know some people say even though, I mean this is not what we believe, but and he, some people say that he could even speak to the animals, which you know can take that with a grain of salt. Um, this is the end of chapter four. Any um, any questions or comments before we conclude? Okay, glory be to God forever. Amen. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We thank you for allowing us to study your word. Help us, O Lord, to grow in understanding and wisdom as your servant, King Solomon. Help us, O Lord, to be filled with you so that everything that we say and we do be filled with a spirit of understanding and with wisdom and how to deal with each other and how to stay away from sin. Protect us from going astray. Protect us, O Lord, in all things and protect those, O Lord, who are suffering and those who are in need. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the community gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit.